We're going to go through the story of Purim in short. Um, we'll go through the story. I know I went through it last year. Some of you perhaps could use a refresher. Um, but it's a great story. And uh, then we'll talk about the customs of Purim, the traditions of Purim. And then we'll focus on one specific tradition, which is eating hamantashen, which we've already given you a little taste of today, this morning. There's hamantashen over there behind you. So the story of Purim is described in the Megillah. You know, the Megillah literally means the scroll. It's really the book of Esther, which is one of the books of our scripture. And uh, we read it on Purim. We read this scroll. And it tells a story. It starts off now, the, the historical context of when this story happened was during the um, period between the first and second temple. After the first temple was destro- destroyed, most Jews were exiled from the land of Israel and brought to Babylon. Over there in Babylon, we uh, lived um, very successfully. We built great, um, we, many Jews became farmers. We built great cities around the town of Nahardaa. Um, and we built great yeshivas. And the Jews became very, very successful. They began trading. They began what was, uh, became known as the Silk Road, trading between east and west. Later, a couple decades after the Babylonian exile began, the um, Persian Empire, Persians conquered um, Babylon. They moved the the capital of this new empire uh, from Babylon, which is on the Euphrates River, to Shushan, or Susa, which is uh, a little bit further east in modern-day Iran. And that became the capital of this empire. Many Jews... Um, many Jews were already very powerful and they had risen to great heights in the uh, Babylonian Empire from being exilees, um, immigrants, forced there from, by the Babylonian king. They had grown very quickly to become leaders in Babylon, uh, leaders in the, in the palace, particularly Daniel um, is the most famous one. And so many Jews moved to um, Persia and to, as part of their trade route and then also to the capital Shushan as part of their involvement um, with the Persian government. So at the time, the king of Persia, the, em- the emperor of Persia was King Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus is the English way of saying it. And um, Ahasuerus ruled, the Megillah tells us, over 127 provinces that stretched from Hodu, which is usually India, till Kush to Ethiopia. So this was the um, Persian Empire that stretched from the Himalayas, went all the way down to the Greek islands, and all the way down to Ethiopia in Africa. And this was the great Persian Empire at its height. And the story starts that King Ahasuerus made a great party. Um, He apparently really enjoyed parties because he made two parties. The first one lasted for 180 days. Um, the second one he made, that was for the nobles. The second one he made for the people of Shushan, of his capital, for the public. And that lasted for seven days. That's a short party. And, uh, and during the party, on the seventh day of the party, he had gotten very drunk. And he was bragging about his queen and how beautiful she was. And he instructed that she come before him um, to show off her beauty to all everybody at the party. The queen herself had made a party also um, for all the women, and she was in the middle of celebrating, and she was not impressed by the king's request, and she refused to come. And um, so the king turned to his advisors and said, what should be done to her? Why, how should she be punished for not having listened to me? He's drunk, remember. 
And one of his advisors, whose name is Memuchan, suggests, says that she has not only rebelled against the king by not listening to your instructions, but she has also taught women all across uh, the Persian Empire not to listen to their husbands. And so, um, and so they, uh, he suggests that as a punishment she be killed, and they send um, letters to all the different provinces in the Persian Empire that in every single home um, the... Uh, husbands should be the ones in charge of the home and should decide what happens in each home. The women should have to listen to their husbands. Now, the Talmud points out, uh, so that's indeed what happened. They kill Vashti, the queen, and... Um, sorry? We talked about this last Okay, doesn't say they killed her. The Talmud says they did kill her. Oh, the Talmud, okay. So, and they send out these letters. Um, they send out these letters to all the different... Uh, <coughs> <laughs> to all the different provinces, and um, she wa- and uh, the Talmud points out that this these letters were actually helpful later in the story because people start began to view the king as a fool just because he has no control in his own home and because he doesn't get along with his own wife is not a reason for him to tell everybody else how they should be acting within their own home. It wasn't a very wise instruction coming from the king. And uh, even then, in a very male-dominated society, they did not look kindly at such a letter that went out in such a decree. So, after, after the king sobered up, he was now uh, d- disappointed that he had killed his queen. He needed a new queen. And so his advisors came, uh, came up with another brilliant idea. They said, bring... Um, bring beautiful women from throughout, from throughout the kingdom, bring them to the palace, and you will have a beauty contest, and the one whom you like the best, you will choose as queen. The king, who, as we see, saw already had a weakness for women, agrees to this plan. Um, you can imagine how much his popularity was growing as a result. Um, but women were brought from across the kingdom. And among the women that were brought, it seems they weren't all brought with their... Uh, um, uh, they, they weren't all brought willingly. Among the women that were brought was a girl called um, Hadassah. She was a cousin of a Jewish leader whose name was Mordechai. And, uh, and she was brought to the palace. The king, the Mordechai changed her name to Esther, which was a Persian-sounding name, and told her not to tell anyone that she is Jewish. Anyway, the king, she, while all the other women were um, spending six months putting on their... Um, Makeup. Apparently, there was. It took six months to really prepare your skin. Um, the um, the uh, Esther refused to Esther refused to um, get herself ready in any way. But anyway, when she came before the king, the king decided that she would be queen. Um, and, um, and the king decided that she would be queen through a big party for her, but she refused to tell the king where she came from. Meanwhile, Mordechai would come every day to the palace to find out what's going on with Esther. It appears that at this point he already had a job in the palace. He was working in the royal court, um, and that way he kept up with Esther to see what was going on. One day he's in front of the palace, and um, he hears two... Uh, two guards speaking to each other. The Talmud says they were not speaking in Persian. They were speaking in another language, Tarshish, that Mordechai happened to know. And he overheard them speaking how they were going to poison the king. The king, um, Mordechai, reported to Esther. Esther reported to the king 
quoting Mordechai, and <coughs> the king checked into the matter and found the poison, had them hung, <coughs> and um, wrote down in the book of Chronicles of the king that Mordechai had saved the king's life. Meanwhile, um, the king had found a new uh, minister, whose name was Haman or Haman, who was going to, um, who had now become um, one of the most important people in the kingdom. Haman insisted that wherever he go, everybody bow down to him. Mordechai, um, who apparently worked in the palace and saw Haman regularly, refused to bow down to Haman. Why did he refuse to bow down to Haman? So. Technically, there's no Jewish law against bowing to others. If you're in Japan, and the way they yeah. greet each other is with bowing, there's nothing wrong with that um, in Jewish law. We're, not, we're forbidden from bowing to idols. But apparently, the Talmud says Haman would have had a, wore an idol around his neck. And so bowing to Haman meant you were bowing to an idol. So um, he therefore refused to, uh, he refused to bow. Um, Haman was offended. He w- decided he was not just going to get Mordechai back, but he was going to punish all of um, the entire Jewish people. So he came to King Ahasuerus and he says there's this nation that is spread out and scattered among the people. They're different than everybody else. And Talmud says, in what way are they different? They don't like to eat with everybody else because they eat different foods. They keep kosher. And they, they never want to work. They always have a day off. Either it's Shabbos or it's a different holiday. <laughs> and, um, and they don't listen to the king. And so it would be wise for the king to get rid of them. If the king agrees to get rid of them, I will pay the king 10,000 silver shekels. The king says, no problem, you're, I'd be more than glad for you to get rid of the Jews, um, and you can keep your money, I don't need your money. And so um, the king gives his ring, which had a, the seal of the king on the ring, to Haman, and says, go write letters instructing that the kings, that the Jews get killed. Uh, go write letters and um, seal it with my ring. Um, Haman now had the ring. And so Haman decides he's going to, his plan is, he wants all the Jews to be killed on one day together. So his plan, he chooses, um, he, he, draw, he makes a lottery of the 12 months of the year. And then the Persians, like the Jews, had lunar months and comes up on the month of Adar. <coughs> and then he chooses among the days of Adar, he chooses the 13th day of the month of Adar as a day to kill all the Jews. And um, so he writes letters to all, of the, to all of the provinces in the kingdom that on the 13th day of the Adar, every um, governor in every kingdom and everybody who um, wants to join in um, will all together rise up and kill all the Jews in their province on that day. Um, the letters were supposed to be secret, but in Shushan, the letter became known very quickly that Haman had planned that all the Jews were going to be killed on that day. Um, and Mordechai, uh, and so the Jews were very uh, upset hearing about it. They all mourned. They all prayed to God. Mordechai donned, tore his clothing and donned sackcloth, which was a sign of mourning, and put ashes on his head. And he went to the palace, to Esther, and he sent a message to Esther uh, with a copy of the, of the decree. And Esther responded, uh, what can I do? And <coughs> Mordechai couldn't go into the palace because he was wearing, because he had torn clothing. It wouldn't have been respectful. And Mordechai said, go into the king and ask for him to help you. 
And she said, I can't go into the king. I've been out of favor with the king. Um, I haven't seen him for 30 days. If I go in, he'll kill me. And so, um, the, and so king, um, and so Mordechai said, um, the re- said that um, the reason why you have become queen, the reason why you were put in this position, is all in order for you to save your people. Now, if you don't save your people, God will find another way to save the people, but you will have li- lost out on the opportunity and missed out on your life's mission. And so Esther agrees. She says, everybody should fast for me for three days. And um, all, tell all the Jews of Shushan to fast for me for three days um, in prayer. And then on the third day, I will go to the king and I will fast as well for those three days. And indeed, they fast for three days. Esther goes into the king. And uh, when the king sees her, he says, Esther, what would you like? I will give up you up to half of my kingdom. And she says, I'd like for you to come to a party, you and Haman together that I have prepared. So the king says, hurry, go call Haman. They come to the party. And he asks her again, Esther, what was it that you wanted? Why did you come? And she says, I'm going to make another party for you tomorrow night. Come to the party tomorrow night, and then I will tell you what's bothering me. Haman was so excited uh, that he had been invited to the, to the, to the king and queen, uh, to a dinner with the king and queen themselves, and he felt on top of the world. But as he walked out of the palace, he bumped into Mordechai. He refused to bow down to him, and he was so upset, he decided he couldn't wait till the 13th of Adar to kill Mordechai. He was going to have um, Mordechai killed before that. He comes home, he asks his wife and his advisors what they should do, and his wife says, why don't you make a gallows 50 cubits high. A cubit is a foot and a half, 75 feet high, and so that everybody all over the city will be able to see it, and you'll hang Mordechai on those gallows. Haman gets very excited. He goes and he builds these gallows, and then goes to the king the next morning, early the next morning, <coughs> excuse me, to ask for permission to hang Mordechai. Meanwhile, the king that night cannot sleep. Why could the king not sleep? Well, um, the, the Talmud suggests that um, Esther invited him and Haman to a party together. He was suspicious. Why did she invite Haman? Perhaps they were both um, planning to assassinate him. So he couldn't sleep. He asked they bring the book of Chronicles before, to read before him, um, the, uh, and they read the book of Chronicles, they read about how Mordechai had saved the king's life. The king said, what had been done to Mordechai? Has he been rewarded? They say, no, he hasn't yet been rewarded. And so just then, Haman was outside, he wanted to go see the king, and the king was still in bed, but the king said, who's outside? He heard someone outside, they said, Haman's here. And so he said, bring him in. Haman walks in, the king says, Haman, there's someone who I really want to honor, what should I do to honor them? Haman thinks, who would the king want to honor other than me? Must be me. And he says, the person who the king really wants to honor, take the king's clothing, dress them in the king's clothing, put the king's crown on their head, and lead them on the king's horse through the street, and have one of the king's ministers say, so shall be done to the man who the king wants to honor. For the king, who by now may have suspected that Haman was planning to assassinate him, that was not what he was hoping to hear. Um, so he tells Haman, do exactly as you said, go and do that for Mordechai. And so Haman is forced, he goes and finds Mordechai, and um, he dresses him in the, in the royal clothing, puts a royal crown on his head, and walks through the streets uh, with Mordechai on the royal horse, um, set, leading him through, saying, this is what shall be done to the man who the king wants to honor. Haman goes home, all disheveled and all tired um, after a long day, and um, when he comes home, his wife tells him, if you 
have already begun to fall before Mordechai. This is just the beginning of the end. As they're speaking, the king's um, guards come to bring Haman to the party that Esther had prepared. They come, Haman comes to the party, and there at the party, Esther says, there's a man who's trying to kill me and my people. The king says, who is that man? And um, Esther says, it's this man right here, Haman. The king is furious. The king gets up, and he walks outside to the garden. Haman, meanwhile, um, turns to Esther and um, stands over Esther, begging her to save his life. The king walks back in, sees Haman right on top of Esther, and he says, are you going to kill the queen right here in my palace? And um, just then, one of the servants said, "Um, your majesty, Haman has built a gallows 50 cubits high um, to hang Mordechai, and the king says, hang Haman on those gallows. So Haman is then hung on the gallows that he had planned for Mordechai. And um, (coughs) then um, the king then offers um, Haman's house and uh, to Mordechai, and Mordechai becomes Mordechai's. Um, Mordechai is given a more important role, takes over Haman's role in the court. Esther goes back to the king. Um, the king says, "What do you want this time?" And she says, um, "Thank you for saving me and my people." But we're still not saved because there's still this decree that has been sent out to all the provinces that on the thirteenth day of the month of Adar. Um, on the 13th day of the month of Adar, all the, um, all the people in the provinces should all rise up and kill all the Jews. And until that decree is rescinded, we are still in mortal danger. So the king says, well, I cannot rescind the decree that I have given, because I've already given the decree. I never rescind decrees. But what I could do is I will make another decree, and this decree will be that everybody should help the Jews, help fight on behalf of the Jews, and help save them from the people that are trying to harm them. Um, the Talmud points out that the king was a great fool um, for a number of reasons, um, but he, throughout the story, comes out as a fool. Uh, but he preferred to have a civil war in his kingdom than rescind a decree that he had given. Um, and the, the Talmud also points out he's a fool because he killed his wife on the advice of his advisor and then kills his advisor on the advice of his wife. <laughs> So Esther didn't go to the king and say she is also a Jew. She did tell by the party. She said she's a Jew. Oh, I, I'm sorry. Yeah, she said a man wants to kill me and my people. It's Haman's trying to kill me and my people because we're Jews. Now, Achashverus knew that he was trying to kill the Jews. He didn't know that Esther was a Jew. And so... Um, and so, they, so Mordechai has letters sent out, royal letters with a royal signature sent out that on the 13th of Adar, everybody should help defend the Jews and, um, try, and they, should, they have permission to kill anybody that tries to harm the Jews. And so on the 13th, so everybody now, the Jews were suddenly popular throughout the kingdom. Um, the Megillah says many Jews were, uh, even many non-Jews were converting to Judaism. Jews were so popular at this point. On the 13th day of the month of Adar, many, non, many people from across the kingdom started to um, start attacking Jewish communities as the king had allowed for and instructed in the original decree. Many others um, sided with the Jews and together defended the Jews from their enemies. Um, and very, it doesn't appear that any Jews were killed. Many of their enemies were killed. The Megillah gives us a number of 75,000 people were killed in this war. Um, 
in the city of Shushan itself. Um, many people were killed and that rose up against the, uh, rose up to kill the Jews. Um, Esther went back to the king and asked, um, firstly, they also killed the ten sons of Haman. Haman had ten sons. They killed all of Haman's ten sons. And then Esther went back to the king and asked for permission, firstly, that in Shushan there were still many people, that the fighting was still ongoing. And so they, she asked permission that they continue fighting the next day and go after all of those that were trying to kill the Jews. And um, then she also asked permission that they hang the ten sons of Haman, and the king gave permission for both of those things. And then she wrote down the story in the book that we have, the book of Esther, and then asked that we read it every year and celebrate. They rested on the next day, the 14th day of the month of Adar, and in Shushan they rested on the 15th day of the month of Adar. And she asked that they remember this every single year, the 14th and 15th day of, days of the month of Adar, that we celebrate um, we celebrate the great miracle. And we still do till today. We celebrate the holiday of Purim. So Purim is celebrated in a number of different ways. Um, firstly, before Purim begins, which, which, but the day before Purim, on the 13th day of the month of Adar, we have what we call Ta'anit Esther, the fast of Esther. The fast of Esther is a fast before the Purim celebration, commemorating the fast before the miracle during the, um, when, when Jews were in danger, they fasted and prayed. So we fast on the day before Purim, and then we break our fast with a few drinks on Purim night. But we start always the day before Purim, which is going to be this Wednesday. It's a morning to evening fast. Um, we read, we read the Megillah Thursday night, and then um, the fast ends after we read the Megillah on Thursday night. So we, that's, what, that's what it starts with. So it starts in the morning, um, at the first light, and then continues on, <coughs> excuse me, until it gets dark. Purim itself is a day of great celebration. We have four special mitzvahs. Thank you. We have four special mitzvahs of Purim. The first mitzvah of Purim is to read the Megillah. We read the Megillah twice on Purim. Um, we read it in the original Hebrew. The Talmud says that. Uh, there's a couple words in the Megillah they didn't know how to properly translate, so it doesn't read in English because we don't know how to translate all the words. Back then, in the Talmud's time already, and so better read it in Hebrew in the original. You know you got it right. And um, so we read the Megillah in the original Hebrew from a scroll, and so we read it twice on Purim, both on Wednesday night and then again on Thursday by day. We're going to have a number of Megillah readings here at the JCC. We're going to read it once... Um, our first reading, I think, is 6.15 here. We're going to read it on Wednesday night, 7 p.m. And then we're going to read um, 8.39 and 9.30. And then the next morning, we're going to read here at 7.30 a.m. And then we're going to read at, um, I think, uh, 8.30 and then 9 a.m. And then we'll have a number of readings here later in the afternoon. 4.30, we're going to read at the Torah Center at 11. And then later in the afternoon at 4.35 and 5.30. So, um, so it's a mitzvah to hear the Megillah being read. The second mitzvah of Purim is to give gifts, mishloach manot, gifts of food. It should be at least two different types of food that we give to someone. And it's a, being accustomed, thank you, it's being accustomed to um, make baskets and give food to many, many of our friends. The third mitzvah of Purim is to give gifts to the poor. 
We should give gifts of food to the poor or gifts of gifts of money, whatever sort of gifts it is to the poor. Um, we can give here to poor people or um, today we have the option because we have digital <coughs> money we can send to Israel. We have the option of giving to poor in Israel as well on the day of Purim. We, we usually collect money here at the JCC that then um, gets transferred to organizations in Israel. Um, <coughs> And then the fourth mitzvah of Purim is to make a big party on Purim. <coughs> we're going to be having two parties here on Purim. The first party we're going to have will be um, on Wednesday night. We're going to have a big adult-only party um, on Wednesday night. I think it's called, it's called Game Night. We're going to be, have board games. Um, an adult-only party at, starting at 8, 8 p.m. on Wednesday night. And then we have our family party um, on Thursday at 4 p.m. And our theme is Purim in the Wild West. So um, it's a custom to dress up on Purim. So you can dress up um, for the theme. It's always been a custom that Jews have dressed up on Purim. And Purim was always a very, very celebratory time, a time when we dressed up, a time also where um, often many communities, they would make a spiel or a Purim play. Often people would tell uh, they would have comedians. The Yiddish word for comedian was badchen. They would have the badchen, would tell jokes on Purim. Um, so it was often a time of great joy, great celebration. And of course, back from the days of the Talmud, um, already mentions that they would drink on Purim. It was one of the Jews. Well, we have, we have a little wine every Shabbat, but the time when we would really drink was on Purim. And so you're all, Judaism does not allow, Jewish law does not allow a person to ever get drunk. Um, that's forbidden, but drinking a little bit is okay. Um, so we always drink. On Purim was the one holiday that we always drank. Um, so that's the uh, great festival of Purim, and uh, it's a mitzvah to drink on Purim. And it's always a time of great, if you go to Israel on Purim, um, or Jerusalem, it's a day of great celebration. Everyone's dressed up. <coughs> Everyone goes door to door, giving Mishloach Manot. A lot of people have, a lot of communities will have... Um, Parties at their community center or synagogues will have a lot of people in their homes have parties open to the public, um, <coughs> and it's really it's a whole day of it's a whole day of celebration. So we're going to miss it. We're going to come up just after party. Now in Israel, in Jerusalem, the um, custom is because on Shushan they celebrated the next day because they had an extra day of fighting. So all walled cities that are walled like Shushan celebrate the day that were walled from those days, celebrate the day after, um, celebrate Purim a day later. Today, the only city that really celebrates the next day is the city of Jerusalem. So in Jerusalem, we celebrate, instead of celebrating Purim on Thursday, they celebrate Purim on Friday. What people in Israel tend to do is they, ce- they celebrate outside of Jerusalem on Thursday, and then you get another day to party if you go to Jerusalem on Friday. So that's the story of Purim. In short, it's a day, as we said, great celebration. Hopefully you'll all join us in some of those celebrations. Now, one of the popular foods of Purim, or the most popular food of Purim, of course, is our hamantashen. You got a little chance to taste the hamantashen. And hamantashen is basically a three-cornered pastry with filling inside. And we're good for those that want to stay afterwards at 11 a.m., um, in 45 minutes, we're going to have a hamantash bake-off downstairs, which you're all welcome to join and learn how to actually make hamantashen. 
but it's essentially a three-cornered pastry filled with a filling inside. Um, We've been eating hamantashen for quite a while. The first reference that we have is that we have a lot of, interestingly, um, Purim comedy books. So over the years, Jews have written plays for Purim because we had a lot of spiels that were done on Purim, special Purim plays, or just books of comedy. We have the first book of comedy was written, it's called Masech the Purim, um, was written in the 1200s by a fellow called Rabbi Clonimus, um, and it's just a book of Jewish comedy. And we have a lot of those kind of books that were written over the years, and so some of them already from the 1500s refer to the Hamantashino by their Hebrew name, as they were known, Aznei Haman, which literally means Haman's ears. And uh, that's, that was their original name. Um, they, so we, we, have read, we have them mentioned, at least going back 500 years. Um, they were almost certainly go back even further than that. Um, many see um, reference to them even as far back as a thousand years ago. Um, all Jews eat them. So, I mean, this crosses Jewish cultures. Sephardic, Ashkenazic, Eastern European, Western European. Everybody eats the Hamantashen. So, I mean, this is quite a... Um, this is one of the Jewish foods that really go beyond the specific culture. goes um, very, very, very far back. And <coughs> so the original term was called Aznei Haman, literally Haman, Haman's ears. And perhaps they look a little bit like ears. Um, and it was a reference for Haman's ears. And two reasons are given as to why it may reference Haman's ears. Either there was this tradition referred to, not in... Um, not until medieval times, but we um, had this tradition that Haman was deaf. And so therefore we um, celebrate by eating Haman's ears. Um, or another tradition is that before hanging people in the Persian Empire, they would cut off their ears. So again, we eat Haman's ears. Um, possibly some historians think that the Hebrew term aznayim, or ears, was a t- common term for pastries. So the same term that used in Hebrew for ears, they also would use for pastries as well. So it just means Haman's pastry. Yes? Uh, you mentioned at the last class that we don't celebrate the death of uh, our enemies, uh, the Passover. So what's this deal with uh, Haman? We're celebrating his death. Uh, We're celebrating his end. That's why, yeah, that's not a great reason. You're right, of Haman's ears being cut off. We definitely celebrate Haman's end, that he was not able to hurt us. Um, do we celebrate that he's dead? Not necessarily, but we definitely celebrate that he wasn't successful in harming us. Um, so it's possible that just <coughs> um, that aznayim or ears is just a term for pastries. Some say that this, it's simply Yiddish. The hamantash um, is a Yiddish term. Tash in Yiddish means pocket. Haman came from the word man. Man in Yiddish means poppy seeds. And as you may recall, um, the original habantash, before they started putting chocolate in it, originally had poppy seeds. So um, habantash just means poppy seeds and in pockets. And that's essentially what it is, a pocket, uh, poppy seeds in a pocket of, of um, dough. So um, another explanation given is that the word tash um, in Aramaic means weakened, and so we somehow weaken Haman by eating this Hamantash. Anyway, these are all theories. We don't know how accurate any of these are. Um, 
What we do know is that there was a custom, and this is mentioned in many of our early works, there was a custom to eat poppy seeds on Purim, and presumably we made the hamantashen for this custom of eating poppy seeds on Purim. Why do we eat poppy seeds on Purim? So this goes back to a story with Daniel. Daniel, and we're going to do a class on Daniel, I think we already wrote that down. Daniel was a um, Jewish prince who was captured during the um, conquest of Judea by King Nebuchadnezzar. And together with three of his cousins, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, were raised with many, many other captured princes in the palace of King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar had a, um, um, used to raise foreign princes in his palace with the interest of having these princes. He either thought they were better blood, um, so they would make better leaders in the Babylonian Empire later, or he thought maybe by raising foreign princes then he'd be able to get the loyalty and making them later leaders in his own empire, he'd get the loyalty of, those, of their people. So they were raised in King Nebuchadnezzar's palace. Now, the beginning of the book of Daniel tells us that these kids, these four kids, did not want to eat non-kosher food in Nebuchadnezzar's palace. And so they refused to eat the food. The person in charge of the kids being raised in the palace um, said, you, got, you have to eat the food, otherwise you won't grow. Otherwise you won't, um, you, you won't be healthy. If you don't eat, you've got to start eating. But they refused to eat, and they said, we cannot eat because we keep kosher. But they agreed to make a deal. They said, we'll eat seeds, which was the only thing, fruits, vegetables, seeds, but they said seeds. And we will remain, we will grow just as fast and be even healthier than the other kids. And so, now we know that vegan diet is very healthy. Um, so, so, um, so they agreed, it was the deal that they made, and they, start, they would eat seeds. And indeed, um, da- Daniel, along with his friends, Hanani, his cousins, Hanani, Mishal, and Azaria, were all much healthier than all the other princes. Just seeds? They were eating seeds or vegetables. And so, but it says seeds. <coughs> and so because of that, they became... Um, then that's what they ate throughout the years as they were growing up. They um, sacrificed not to eat non-kosher, and they kept kosher in Nebuchadnezzar's palace. Later, all four of them, Daniel became the most famous, but all four of them became leaders um, in the Babylonian Empire, as well as Jewish leaders. And so, so just as Daniel did not have access to non-kosher food, to kosher food in the palace, so he ate seeds, in the same way Esther, when she was in, in Kiga Hashayosh's palace, she didn't have access to kosher foods, even though she was the queen, there was no kosher kitchen in the palace. And so therefore, she survived by eating seeds or by eating vegetables um, for all those years, refusing to eat non-kosher. And so because of that, we eat seeds on Purim. And so that's why we made the hamantash in order to, um, as a way to eat the seeds. With time, we got rid of the, very recently, we got rid of the um, poppy seeds because we discovered that um, jam and chocolate tastes a lot better. <laughs> Nobody likes puppy seeds anymore, right? Puppy seeds are okay. People like the puppy seeds. Yeah, if you if you recall the old-fashioned hamantaschen, um, you can't really get them anymore, but then our grandmothers used to make. They weren't like these with a hard... They were like a soft dough, big hamantaschen, almost like bread-like, um, and with puppy seeds in the middle. That was the original hamantaschen. The stuff they make is a uh, uh, 21st century knockoff. Yes, Sandy. This is going back, and maybe I'm 
Yes, there is a tradition that the reason why it has three sides um, is because Haman's hat had three was um, was had three points to it, um, and that that was the hat that the Persian nobleman used to wear back then, um, similar to George Washington kind of hat, three sides. Um, <laughs> and there's also tradition that the three sides represent our three forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And thanks to the three forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's what caused that Hamantash, according to the explanation that Haman was weakened, what caused Haman to be weakened was the merit of our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who were always there looking out for their descendants. Yes? Like I said later, the odd is the whole thing about concealment as far as underneath. Yes, that's what I'm going to get to. Yes, very good. Okay, so perhaps the most powerful, and there are many different explanations for Hamantash, but perhaps the most powerful explanation, and this is the secret of the Hamantash that I alluded to in the title, um, the most powerful of all these explanations is a Kabbalistic explanation, um, which has been around for quite some time, which explains that really the Hamantash is about, that really you're, the goal is not to eat the um, pastry, it's really about the filling. And uh, the only, the filling gets hidden, it gets covered over, it gets, it's hidden inside the pastry. Now the pastries are open, that you could see the filling, but in the original, the, it was totally covered, you were not able to see the filling at all. And it reminds us of the unique uniqueness of the Purim miracle. What happened in the, on Purim was, it was the first great miracle in our history, where there was no supernatural events happening. Before that, we were used to, we, we had many miracles. We had the exodus from Egypt, where there had been ten plagues levied on the Egyptians. We had the splitting of the Red Sea when the Egyptians drowned. We had the crossing of the Jordan River when we went into the Promised Land. Later, the fall of the walls of Jericho, they fell to the ground. Um, Later, we have miracles when Joshua fights the Canaanites. Um, he gets the sun to stop in its place. Um, later, in days of King Deborah, we spoke about this a few weeks ago, um, they have this miracle of very, very few against many. And um, the, um, where Deborah describes, it's like the stars were fighting with them against Sisera, against the Canaanites. And so over the years, they had many wars, many miracles, but usually the miracles were out in the open, public miracles. They were very clear. The story of Purim is a very, it's a great story. They've never made a, um, a movie of it yet. <laughs> but, sorry? It's several movies. No big, no big name movies. Shoe Panther. No. So, I don't know how you describe big name movies. So it's a great, it's a great story. Um, it, it's a great story, but really, um, while there's a lot of suspense in the story and a lot of drama, there's no real miracle over here. Nothing really happened out of the ordinary. What then is the great celebration? So it's a miracle in the sense that things were not looking very good for the Jewish people. The Jewish people were on the verge of being totally wiped out. Remember, at that point, all, every Jewish person alive lived in the Persian Empire. So if they would be wiped out in the Persian Empire, there'd be no one left. Um, so all the Jews were be at the, on the verge of being wiped out. And then, thanks to Esther's intervention, 
and the king being influenced by her intervention, they were able to switch things around to the point where Haman was killed and where the king then allowed them to defend themselves and encourage others to help them defend themselves and to kill their enemies. And so, um, so it was very much, it's a great plot, but there was nothing out of the ordinary, nothing miraculous that really happened over here. It was, and the truth is that it may not have even been a very public event. It may not, people may not have even known um, about what happened behind the scenes in the palace, the palace intrigue. The average Jew in some province in Babylon, far away from the capital, may not have known, may have known that there was a decree, may or may not have known that there was a decree. Um, one reason that I forgot to mention for Hamantash, some say that Mordechai sent messages to the, about the decree to Jews around the empire, but he wanted to send them secretly so nobody would know that he was making the decree public that was supposed to be private. Um, he wouldn't be accused of treason. And so uh, Mordechai was sending secret messages, and he sent the secret message by hiding them in pastries. That's another reason given for the Hamantash. But people may or may not have known about the, about the decree. Even if they did know, once they knew that the king had given permission for them to defend themselves, they may not have known the whole story of how things change and exactly what happened. It may not have been all that public until Esther published her scroll and the story of what actually happened. It wasn't widely known, and it definitely was not, nothing out of the ordinary happened. Nothing really supernatural, nothing really that amazing happened. Just a lot of drama, but everything worked itself out. And so here you see God's hand, God's guiding hand, but God's guiding hand is not obvious. It's there secretly. And of course they prayed to God, Esther had told them before she approached the king that they should all fast for three days and pray to God, asking God to save them. Um, so they did turn to prayer, and they did ask God to help them, and God indeed did help them, but not in a very, very obvious way. And so, the Hamantaj then reminds us how God is there, there, even in the worst of times, even through their suffering in, uh, or their threats during the, the story of, the, of Purim. However, <coughs> God is hidden. He's covered up. You don't see him, just as the filling in the Hamantash is covered up as well. And for this reason, we also eat another similar food on Purim called crepple. Anyone heard of crepple before? Sometimes they know crepple. Sometimes they know plural, they're plural, which is krepalach. 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 Of course. What is that, krugel or something? What are krepalach? What are krepalach? So, krepalach look very much like hamantashen. They're triangular... Um, dough that is filled with meat inside and then it is boiled and it is put into your chicken soup. And you eat it with the chicken soup on pork. And so we have a custom <coughs> that <coughs> excuse me we have a custom that we make krepalach also for Purim. Purim is not the only holiday that we eat krepalach. We actually eat krepalach three times a year. Um, the, Ashkenazi, uh, the Eastern European 
custom is to eat the Krepalach three times a year. On the eve of Yom Kippur, the day before Yom Kippur, when we have our big dinner before Yom Kippur, and on Hoshana Rabbah, the last day of Sukkot, and on Purim. Those are the three times a year that we eat the Krepalach. Um, those are the three times that we have a great festive meal when it is not a Yom Tov, when it's not a holiday. Those are where we have a, uh, a Jewish festive meal um, on those three days. So, um, so, we, so we eat Krepalach, it's explained again, for the same reason. It is meat on the inside, the main thing is the meat. But the meat is hidden over. For the same reason, it reminds us how God's presence is hidden. And it really teaches us something very important on our own, in our own lives. Because we don't usually get to see supernatural miracles in our day-to-day life. We don't see something that the totally impossible happening in our regular lives. That's not very common. However, we do get to see God's hand if only we look. Or as one sage once said, the miracles were always rolling under the table, but no one bothered to pick them up. Right? So, and we believe that in what we call hashkacha pratit, or uh, literally individual um, providence or divine providence, God is looking and in control of everything that happens. And we believe that God's hand is there in every part of our lives. Things happen totally in unexpected ways. And, um, but God's providence, God's guiding hand is there in every single thing. Um, sometimes we just go through life and we never bother to notice it. We never pay attention to God's guiding hand. So it's very important, and this is what the Purim story teaches us, it's very important, like Esther, to recognize when things work out, they didn't just work out. There was a guiding hand that made sure that they work out. God was there to make sure things work out. Most of the time, unfortunately, not always, most of the time things do work out. Most of the time things come together and almost always in unexpected ways. Most solutions to most problems were unpredictable. In other words, they end up being solved in ways that were unexpected. But we believe that they don't just happen by themselves, they happen because it's a guiding hand. God is planning it all and makes everything work out. But too often we fail to recognize God's hand in everything. Too often we fail to either take credit for things ourselves or complain about the problems, not realizing how God is making things work themselves out. And so we, um, so we Jews really need to learn from Purim and from the Hamantash that God, yes, is hidden inside, but we've got to eat away at that um, external layer, um, the external world, and we've got to dig deep inside to see what is inside. So thank you.